Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. Today's show is being re-aired to honor and remember businessman James Spencer, who has died after being tortured by law enforcement, which left him in chronic pain, as well as enduring the murder of his mother, all as a result of his efforts to expose a smuggling scheme involving Saudi charities making money to fund terrorists, including the 9-11 hijackers. After turning to the courts for relief, Jim found that the corruption from which he was trying to find justice extended not only to the courts, but to the highest levels of political and judicial leadership in this country. Jim Spencer passed away on Saturday, October 9th, 2021. His mission to expose all the aforementioned corruption, to warn the American people about it, and to get justice and accountability for it all left unfinished. The Whistleblower Newsroom extends its deepest condolences to Jim's family and friends and wants them to know that he and his work will not be forgotten. This interview with Spencer and his former business colleague, Dr. Nick Williamson, was done seven months ago in March. A highly successful business executive from Nevada, James Spencer, accidentally uncovered a massive illegal activity involving Saudi funding of Al-Qaeda and 9-11 hijackers via a black market scheme after his U.S. company bought a company in Venezuela that, unbeknownst to him, was part of the scheme. The gates of hell opened up for Spencer when he tried to report it to law enforcement, including the FBI. After that, attempts were made to kill him in which Spencer says, local law enforcement, the FBI, and a United States Senator were complicit. After Spencer refused to back down, his elderly mother was taken from his care, sent to a nursing home where she was abused, eventually to death. When Spencer turned to the courts for help, he ran into a hostile judicial system that included a judge whose appointment was bought and paid for in exchange for his willingness to undermine Spencer's court case. That was when Spencer uncovered the black money judgeship buying operations that evidence he has from the court system itself indicate involved Brett Kavanaugh. Spencer, by the way, was introduced to me by a retired FBI agent with a long distinguished career whom I trust and who called me to ask me to tell Spencer's story. Both of us have seen Spencer's evidence and it is shocking. With Spencer today is Dr. Nick Williamson, a former member of the board of directors of Jim's US company, who at times lived Spencer's nightmare with him. Williamson has spent hundreds of hours working on Spencer's court cases and is intimately familiar with his story. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. So let's start at the beginning. You had a company called Southern Holdings, and you bought, you were buying this company called Avestra in yeah. Venezuela. Now, what was this company doing, the, the Venezuelan company? Venezuelan company was uh, the, had one of the exclusive licenses to import tobacco into Venezuela, uh, and it had contracts with R.J. Reynolds. And it, uh, what we did was take over the company 
because funding had been withdrawn from the providers to the ownership of the company. And so they contacted me and asked if I could restructure the company. As part of the restructuring, we made an arrangement where we would take over the company and through the Export-Import Bank, uh, we would provide funding upfront for the cigarettes to be purchased from R.J. Reynolds. And that's how it started. That was, it was a tobacco uh, products company. Okay. Right. So now when did you discover <laughs> that this company, and how did you discover that this company was involved in black marketeering and explain exactly what it was doing as part of this scheme? Well, what happened is uh, I, there's not much humorous this, uh, to the story, but what happened in this is that uh, Dr. Williams and I went to Wake Forest University to see a professor over there, um, a graduate of Wake Forest, their MBA program, and we were going to see a professor over there about signing a team of students which they have a second year project to work on uh, to see about opening up markets. Well, the professor, um, because they use what they call the parallel market, which is another name we've later found out was for smuggling, um, the professor said that, uh, no, he couldn't get his students involved in it um, because of the danger and we, however, he was interested in getting involved in that. And this kind of perplexed Nick and I, because we had no idea what they were, what he was talking about, about the danger. So then Nick did some research and came up with what exactly was going on in the parallel market as far as um, this was basically a euphemism for smuggling. And this is something that we absolutely did not want to be involved in. And so that's really how it became uncovered. The well, I'm, how, well, wait a second. It, but you, were, you uncovered this in your own organization. Right. I guess, Nick, can you explain how, how yes. you discovered it? Go ahead. Yes. Uh, uh, we were interviewing a, uh, an individual named Anselby Garvin for the... Uh, to be head of Evestra uh, as owned by Southern Holdings, our right. company. And uh, we indicated to him that he had made it all the way to the final step. And that was, he was to make uh, a, a presentation on how, what, what marketing strategies he would use to enhance sales for Evestra in the coming year. And he, uh, what he did was he laid out a very uh, detailed uh, description of how Evestra's uh, uh, personnel would meet uh, personnel with buyers in Colombia, very close to the border of Colombia. And uh, these buyers would, would purchase uh, cigarettes by by gold at a ten percent premium, which would uh, oh, you mean they buy in exchange for gold they would purchase cigarettes? Yes. Okay. 
Yes. And the 10% premium was to compensate us for the trouble that you went to to have to uh, trade gold for U.S. dollars. And uh, uh, what happened was uh, this Anselby Garvin uh, had as a main heading of his presentation how to dramatically include tax-free money for uh, Evestra in the coming year. And ta tax-free money is, is, is a, uh, of course, means smuggling. Right. And, and uh, I, uh, I, I saw that in, in the meeting, and I looked over at Brian, and Brian, uh, or Jim, uh, John, Jim looked at me, and, and I, I signaled to him to please come out in the hall while, while uh, Garvin was making his presentation. And he, Brian and I talked, Jim and I talked a while, and, and we concluded this was smuggling, and it was a real problem. And we had to get our company out of it. Right. But that's how, that's exactly how we found that out. Now, later, uh, 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 Jim uh, discovered the nuts and bolts of the uh, smuggling activities when he, I think in August of 1999, uh, uh, met with Roy Sheriff, a person who, uh, I, I was was heading up, owned somehow was top management for Investor, and uh, it, uh, that in, during the during the me, during the meeting in I think it was October of 1998, uh, Jim met with Banco de Venezuela, and also Hugo Chavez, who was at that point in time. A, the nominee for president of Venezuela. Later, we found out that Hugo Chavez's family was soaking the uh, the company Evestra uh, by by providing uh, security for the company. Really, it was it was just money. Uh, security. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so. Uh, Hugo Chavez had a huge interest in the continued uh, operation of Evestra as it was. As, as a smuggling operation. Yeah, as a smuggling oh. operation. Wow. But, but at, at that time, uh, uh, Jim and I both have, uh, we have pretty extensive uh, academic experience in international uh, knowledge in international business. But candidly, we were somewhat uh, uh, on the, in the beginning stages for learning how cigarettes were actually exported and imported. And uh, at that meeting, where there was Hugo Chavez and people with the Central Bank of Ven the Central Bank of Venezuela, uh, they bandied about terms such as the parallel market, the general market, and other such terms, and. On their face, these terms sounded uh, innocuous, the general market, the parallel market. We thought they were just other kinds of channels of distribution. Turned out there were euphemisms for cigarette smuggling channels. Oh and, and, and that meeting with them, with Banco de Venezuela and with, uh, with Hugo Chavez was intended to get 
their sense on whether we would continue on with the cigarette smuggling activities with Southern Holdings as the owner. Well, uh, well now, but see, uh, Jim didn't and I didn't know about any of these terms. So when we heard them used in conversation, it, it, it meant nothing to us. Uh, so the, these are the persons, Chavez and Banco de Venezuela, I'm sure, and Jim's sure, came away from the meeting with the sense you were okay with it. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. no problem. And so, uh, and, and that was later, that was later uh, uh, established in a meeting between uh, uh, Roy Sheriff and personnel with Banco de Venezuela. So, so Jim... Uh, when did you discover the Saudi angle on this thing? Well, <clears throat> Roy Sheriff, because he was in need of money. Um, he was the Avestra executive? He was the uh, yeah, former uh, Avestra executive. Right. Who, uh, okay. he, he had been dealing with uh, some Saudi charities, and they did not want us to deal with the XM Bank, because that would have meant um, a, a reporting to XM Bank, um, a lot of information they did not want out. And it turns out the head of security was negotiating, the head of Saudi security was negotiating with Roy Sheriff on a, um, on a um, island nearby Venezuela, uh, where the Saudi charities would supplement the money to supply the cigarettes, excuse me, to supply the funding for the cigarettes uh, with no questions being asked. And that, at that point in time, um, all sorts of alarms went off. And we started doing research of exactly who these people were. And at the same point in time, uh, we decided this was not going to be in our interest. Um, we would be violating all sorts of laws. Um, well, wait, what, what is it that the Saudis did? They bought the cigarettes? What is the... The Saudis were going to supply the money to Avestra to buy the cigarettes from R.J. Reynolds. Okay? Then the cigarettes would be traded uh, for the gold. And then the percentages would come back where the Saudis would get a percentage of the profits from the cigarettes. Okay. And those profits uh, from the Saudi charities were then streamlined through several different banks. We have the listings of them uh, and the paperwork of several different banks, which that were then supplying the money through Florida banks that were ending up funding the hijackers and their flight schools. Okay, and one of them was Bank of America. And so we, um, at that point in time, um, we just said no. Um, we put our interest in the licenses up for sale. And we had a meeting in Las Vegas where we sold our interest and bought interest uh, to a Chinese trading company who were very interested in tobacco. And didn't mind the smuggling part. <laughs> well, we didn't. 
you know, we just, we were selling licenses. Not well, the okay. Huh. All right. Uh, but I'm sure that uh, they wouldn't have minded the smuggling part. But again, what we were doing is solely license selling. And right. Roy, Roy Sheriff did not want you to sell that, those licenses, right? Oh, absolutely not. Okay. Because that would cut them out. Okay. And so they came up with a plan to oppose us. And we then put it to a vote of the shareholders. And 99% of the shareholders backed us um, up. And then they hired people to um, put me on the NCI NCIC as a fleeing felon. Um, okay. They... Who's they? Because I, I, there were two, from what I understand, there were two Avestra executives, uh, Roy Sheriff and Ansel Garvin, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Who hired a guy named Steve Hartness. Right. Who came up with the destroy U.S. Southern Holdings, uh, that, that's you, and, you know, destroy you guys. So this could be stopped. Is that correct? That's correct. And okay. Go ahead. And they had um, gone to the extent of, Hartness was a former police officer who okay. was uh, uh, fired from his position for moral turpitude uh, from the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department. Okay. And, uh, so he was very familiar with the NCIC. And he was very familiar on how to bribe people within the police department. And so he went and placed a, uh, bribed a police officer in Guilford County. Now, was, this is in, in South Carolina. Guilford County, North Carolina. North Carolina, I'm sorry. And why, why are we in North Carolina now? Hardness was, had connections with uh, a, uh, with uh, sh sheriff's deputies in North Carolina. And what they were doing was wanted to put me on the NCIC as an armed and wanted fugitive, which had yeah. to be the NCIC is is the criminal database where when they want to go after somebody who's committed a crime, they put them up flat, put them a bit, and everybody is flagged so that they can go after you. Yeah, felony, right? felony. Yeah. Yes, and felonies and above. Yes. Okay. What's interesting is the felony they charged me with was um, family offense, which was kind of interesting because I never had a family. And let's what, what was the family offense? Well, that's the problem they have. <laughs> there was no family offense. No, no, but what did they say? What did they say? What was in the NCIC documentation? Just a family offense. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, armed and extremely dangerous. Oh, wow. Okay, so then what happened? So then what happened is Hartness brought his little traveling uh, fun show down to South Carolina and bribed police officers. And it comes out of Hartness's notebook uh, to go after me. And uh, they were broadcasting that I was wanted in the murder of a uh, recently killed sheriff's deputy in uh Horry county and on top of the family offense yes okay 
So I was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I uh, of course, I was with a, sh a police officer, Rodney Leo, who they destroyed his career when he went and told them the truth. Um, I was, I was unaware of any of this. And um, next thing I knew, I got the former solicitor of Ward County, Ralph Wilson, and he got everything. He went before uh, a judge, and the, the judge um, said South Carolina did not follow protocol, that I was not wanted for any felony, and to take me off everything. And then I went to a, another lawyer up in uh, North Carolina, and they had me taken off everything. And the police ignored it, uh, tracked me down while I was with Rodney, waited till I, I was working with the former head of the North Carolina, uh, who was uh, Haywood Starling, the former head of North Carolina, Nick? Uh, uh, North Carolina uh, State Bureau of Investigation. He, uh, he was working with us and uh, investigating what had gone on and um, Haywood had met with the FBI. He couldn't understand um, what this, why this had been allowed to occur. And he, we, um, we had him down in South Carolina and he was taking on the case. And as soon as he cleared the state line, uh, they came after me again, despite being cleared by a judge. And, um, set me up at a felony traffic shop uh, stop in a shopping center and uh, held me for eight hours and um, proceeded to torture me to try to get me to sign some kind of confession. And uh, what was the confession? Oh, that you that you actually murdered this guy? Uh, something to that effect. Yes, that I was I, the, actually it was a release that I would allow myself to be uh, extradited to North Carolina. Now, the problem is, <laughs> one, I had nothing to be extradited for. Uh, second, uh, what were they going to extradite me to? There was no, no charges on me. So they figured I was going to pay a visit with the alligators um, in uh, the South Carolina swamps. Oh. Um, so uh, they never got anything out of me, but uh, they um, played Russian roulette with me to try to get me to sign the papers and uh, this was all documented by well, what do you mean like put a gun to your head yeah spin the chambers and pull the trigger yeah and uh then they were torturing me with a stun gun and uh they had kept me in the car in um with the temperature at that day which was in august that's over 120 degrees without air conditioning water and uh I was uh, uh, near death, quite frankly. Um, they then, um, because they let the cuffs so tight that the recordings show I was begging to get out of the cuffs, um, it permanently damaged my ulnar nerve. So uh, my right arm and wrist is permanently paralyzed. And uh, I... Uh, was left 100% disabled from that stop. And uh, so uh, when I got to the jail, the uh, 
the um, they were going to hold a, a court session to see how long they were going to hold me for. And uh, the uh, judge got the word that no, I was a I was a member of a civil rights organization and uh, to let me loose. And so he um, he assigned me a uh, a court date. And um, the judge heard the case and said there was no basis to it and let me go. Well, wait, hold up now. All during this time, nobody in the court system is connecting this false NCIC charge with Roy Sheriff and Ansel Garvin uh, trying to strong arm you or were they at this point, what do they want you to do? Well, at this point, uh, the only thing I could do and Nick had seen uh, the FBI because they went after him uh, in Greensboro and claimed that he and I were using students at the university um, as a uh, his students, his co-eds as a of prostitution ring. And so, so this was pure retaliation at this point. There was nothing. It was just pure retaliation. Pure retaliation. Oh, my and God. What they were doing was uh, uh, with me, um, they had to they had to come up with an explanation. And there, there was no explanation. And we, Nick, actually went to see the agent in charge at the, uh, the FBI office in... Um, in North Carolina in Greensboro and uh, they told Nick, well, Nick and uh, the uh, former head of the State Bureau of Investigation went to see um, the FBI agent in charge and he um, then told Nick after he did a little research, he said, uh, they weren't going to do anything on this because, um, and Nick can tell me if the quote is correct, because uh, in the real world, many people speed, but not everybody gets a speeding ticket. So they're not going to get a speeding ticket. Wait, and who? Who isn't? Ansel Garvin and... and the, uh, the people that put so, me... In. So were they... So was... Go ahead, Nick. Go ahead, Nick. Phil Celestini. Phil Celestini... Uh, and, uh, with the FBI in, in Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, now, why would he protect these guys? Pardon me? Why was he protecting these guys? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, we really don't know. We, we don't know that until today. And, I, and I, I, let me follow up on what Jim said. Uh, uh, I pursued Celestini over, over weeks to, to give me a straight answer regarding why the uh, FBI was not going to pursue this obvious case of uh, civil rights violations under the color of law. And what he said was, in line with what Jim said, everybody speeds, but not everybody gets a speeding ticket. Meaning, um, yeah. meaning he, he was admitting that the people involved on the other side were guilty, but they weren't going to get their speeding ticket. Well, exactly. 
even though torture was involved. That's right. Even torture. Okay. So now, so now let's, this NCIC business though, it did involve, and we won't say who the Senator was, but it did involve a Senator's office. Did it not? Eventually it came down to a, our current United States Senator who was involved with getting records from the NCIC, which were, uh, let's put it, were sanitized. Why was, why was he getting these records? Uh, we had put in a FOIA request to get them. Okay. So uh, we wanted to see exactly what, um, what was going on, but this was a follow-up request. We'd already sent another request through uh, Jesse Helms' office. And Jesse Helms produced the records and showed that uh, because they claimed they didn't know who they had at this uh, traffic stop where they uh, uh, paralyzed me. And uh, so uh, we saw that they had that the record did show that they knew who I was. So, so wait a second now. I just want to be very clear. You asked a certain you you put in a FOIA request because you wanted to see what exactly was on this NCIC document that got you tortured and so on. And you put in the request and you got back some uh, sanitized documents. Correct. OK. And those sanitized documents, what was their connection to the senator's office? They came through the senator's office. Oh, they came through the senator's office. OK. Right. So then you looked at these sanitized documents and you said, well, let's try Senator Jesse Helms. No, I, I had the records from Jesse Helms first. Oh, you had the, oh. Now, why would the other senator send you sanitized records? Because um, we had filed a court case in between for what had happened. And all of a sudden, this was not going to go what they anticipated. So this other senator who's in on this little network, um, had, a, he had been decided to um, make sure that we didn't get the complete set of records uh, so we didn't have the evidence we needed in the courtroom. So why did he have an interest, though, in, in seeing you destroyed through the court system? Why are these powerful people interested in seeing you destroyed in the court system? State Budget and Control Board in South Carolina was the insurance carrier for Horry County. The claim we had was a RICO claim, which was treble damages, which were um, raised it to several million dollars. And the best way to get rid of that is to make it make our evidence disappear. And so um, that's when he um, that's when he became actively involved. And uh, not only did he become actively involved. Um, when you say he, are you talking about the state senator? I'm talking about U.S. senator. U.S. senator, yes. Okay, that's when he became actively involved? Oh, really? Yeah. And, uh, of course, the State Budget and Control Board controls just about everything in South Carolina. And um, they, uh, they had wanted this to go away also. And we have all the documents you can imagine that showed what they were doing and how they did it and 
when, as the years went by, we, uh, new people were in charge of the FOIA, uh, uh, FOIA records. And these people weren't aware of the entire cover-up. So we got more and more records, including documentation that uh, showed exactly what had been going on. And the records from the FBI, supposedly from the FBI, that went to uh, SLED. What's SLED? South Carolina Law Division. Oh, South, South Carolina, Carolina Law Enforcement Division. Okay, yeah. Um, Mark Keel, who's the head of SLED, um, he, uh, he knew the FBI could not get involved in this case unless they opened up a full-blown investigation, and they were going to do that. So, um, because it wasn't to their interest. So what they did is uh, fake the documents as if the FBI had examined the tapes. And the reason we know the documents were faked is that somebody tried to uh, use sled documents as if they were FBI documents. So the documents were all forged. And By we, the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division. Yes. Oh my God. Okay. We also got later on a note confirming that Mark Keel had ordered Captain Caldwell to do this, and that it was it was from a FOIA. We couldn't believe that that. Piece now, of, who's Mark Keel again? Mark Keel's the head of Sled. Oh, okay. Current head of Sled. Oh. And. Uh, wow. He was, uh, uh, Caldwell was his uh, primary, uh, uh, primary official that handled the uh, forensic research. And Caldwell is the person that forged the records. And he made a notation that was in the file that said he was ordered to do this by Mark Keel. Now, this sounds like a runaway cover-up because, I mean, if they had, you know, if they had tortured you, Okay, because of this one corrupt cop who made this whole thing happen, well, it, it could have been contained, but it's almost as if all of a sudden, because you were going to get more money because you were tortured, uh, everything came down on you and you had to be, you had to be destroyed. Now, meantime, meantime, uh, as your court case is going along, you tried to report to the FBI and to other people about this Al-Qaeda funding and hijackers funding, right? So yeah, I started that off before we even filed the case. What happened with all that? Well, it's supposed to be, according to what is known as MIAG, which is the FBI's rules, they were supposed to go to the uh, bureau in Washington. But the individual who was supposed to be handling the investigation um, by the name of Marsh, who's now deceased, um, he, uh, he was the individual who interviewed me in violation of all FBI MIOC principles. And, um, he went to the budget and control board and he went and killed the stuff before it went to Washington. So it never got to the Washington committee that investigates this. Nobody saw it. Why? Why did he do that? Because he got a position as a very lucrative position in South Carolina government as the head of security for the 
uh, South Carolina lottery. That was his payout. Okay. Yeah, but why? Who ordered him to to stop that information from getting to Washington? We know that two uh, two sled officials sat in on the civil rights review. Okay, when I was being uh, when I was being questioned, and that is against the rules. So most likely it was the people who sled. They got to Marsh and say, hey, we can make a deal out of you. And even though he didn't have the qualifications, he ended up getting that position. But it makes no sense to me that it's one thing that they're lying about the NCIC stuff for their friend who had this scheme because you, you, you know, they were retaliating against you for, the, for shutting down the business. But why would the FBI not be critically interested? This is 1990, this is before 9-11. Why would they not be critically interested in, and, and why would a South Carolina law enforcement division guy be able to tell an FBI guy, hey, don't, why would he be interested in your information not getting to Washington? Well, there's a, there's a couple of, you know, we looked into that quite a bit. And there was an individual with the FBI who was in the New York office who was in charge of all Al-Qaeda relations. And this individual was on the outs with the current director of the FBI, which wasn't Mueller at the time. Uh, and, in fact, they did a report. What, Louis Free? Louis Free. Louis Free was on the outs with uh, this gentleman and... Uh, they did a report on, it wasn't Nightline, it was the other, um, the other. That's okay, whatever, it's, they did a report on TV. They did a report on TV that uh, showed that what happened was Louis Free um, basically fired this guy because he got, he was convinced that the Twin Towers involved Al-Qaeda. And uh, he told Louis Free that he was positive when they flew back from the Twin Towers that were blown up in, in Saudi Arabia. And Louis Free had gotten upset at him and wanted to isolate him. So he put him in charge of the New York office of Al-Qaeda. And when he was bringing back one of the witnesses, um, he, uh, who was uh, an Arab informer. Yeah, but this is before 9-11. That's right. This is right before 9-11. But see, he got transferred to New York the day before 9-11. Okay, the day before 9-11, oh. his first day on the job was uh, was when he took command about 9-11. And um, then what had ordered, Louis Free had sent an order down that all information on Al-Qaeda connections was not to be transmitted to Washington. He issued Why? That Why? I, it, oh, it, that's I, suspicious. I don't I, know. That, that, well, that, it's, it's because um, they, uh, the, what we understand, uh, it's uh, they, uh, what we understand is because he just, he had it in uh, for this uh, uh, FBI hotshot and wanted to make sure that his work didn't go anywhere. Man, yeah. that is that is really crazy when you consider <clears throat> what happened. But okay, I want to, <clears throat> I want to, yeah, go ahead, Nick. And uh, following on what Jim's saying, uh, uh, 
Jim and I went to several different FBI agents during a period of, I don't know how long, uh, at least a year or two. And from the MIOG manual that, that Jim's referencing, the Manual of Informational Investigative and Operational Guidelines uh, for any civil rights crime, the report of any civil rights crime, which there were many civil rights crimes, civil rights crimes con, uh, committed under color of law in our situation. The, the, uh, the FBI agent who takes that information is mandated to immediately send that information to the special FBI office in Washington, D.C. that handles all the civil rights crimes and only the civil rights crimes reported to the FBI. Well, the interesting thing about this is one wonders how interested they were in learning about Saudi funding of uh, 9-11 perpetrators, you know. I mean, this seems to be a recurring theme. I don't know if that was a th the theme back then, but their disinterest in this is very interesting. I want to, because our time is getting short, I really want to talk about this Kavanaugh connection which has to do with um, all your case just kept getting bigger and bigger and messier and messier. So all of a sudden they need a judge uh, in South Carolina, correct? They need a judge who's gonna do what they wanna do. So explain to me the whole, explain to me the buying, the judge, the judgeship buying, and how that was connected to Kavanaugh, based on the evidence that you found. Okay. What we know is that uh, $250,000 was the sum that was used to get this judge, this individual, into position uh, to be nominated. As and who wanted him in there? Uh, the uh, one is the Budget and Control Board of South Carolina. Uh, two is the United States Senator uh, who was involved in this. And um, three is the uh, various police departments that were involved and had connections with this. And okay. So, so he had a whole host of people who wanted him in that job. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Okay. And this kind of goes back to what you were asking about. How many people involved in this? South Carolina has been known to be um, a receiving point from illicit money out of South America. Okay. They've got airports all over the state that receive planes from South America that are loaded with drug money. It's just, it's well known within the state. Now, um, what they wanted to do with is to make this case go away. Nick and I traveled to Washington. We tried to meet with the, uh, the United States senator that was involved in this. And uh, they, we had an agreed to appointment and then they, they never showed up at his office. And then we had met with Congressman 
uh, from Greensboro, who Nick and I both knew. Uh, what was that congressman's name? Coble. Congressman Howard Coble. And uh, Coble was very interested. And uh, what happened was that uh, the powers that be got this, all of a sudden the, the presiding judge in this very complex case, a RICO case, was replaced by this uh, judge who had basically no federal court experience. And um, we now know how, um, how he got appointed. Uh, and we even have the minutes from the meeting. Now, wait, wait, wait. So you're talking about this judge. You're talking about the judge who was uh, supposed to throw your case, right? Exactly. Okay, so let's let's I, we have to be very clear, uh, in, you know, in a straight line here. So, who paid for this judge? Where did that money come from? That money came from <clears throat> from his family, and was uh, and also involved Horry County, who was one of the defendants in this case. Okay. And um, see, Horry County was in on the. And who did his family pay? They, um, it, and um, we actually have an individual who was in on the um, in on the transaction, who has um, provided us with notes that have been verified through handwriting experts to be from the people that she said they were. Okay. Said they were, and uh, they, uh, uh, they. Um, they, they wanted the, uh, they wanted him put in there and as compensation for him put in there to get the lifetime appointment, they wanted to make sure this cut and this case never got anywhere. No, no, I know that, but so oh, the, yeah. the judgeship, the cost of the judgeship was $250,000. Where did that, who they, the family paid that $250,000 to who? Okay, two hundred thousand went to uh, the Bush Cheney contributions, or uh, went through Kavanaugh because he was in charge of all appointments of district judges. He was picking them at that time. Okay, for the Bush Cheney administration, so he was picking the judges. So they had to have tacit approval from him. The fifty other fifty thousand dollars went to the campaign of the. United States Senator who was involved. That, okay, this is mind blowing. All right, so I just wanna be very clear. So this $250,000, this lawyer's family bought his judgeship, $250,000, $200,000 goes to the Bush Cheney campaign fund. Correct. And $50,000 goes to the United States Senator's campaign fund and the approval of the and 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 the approval of the judgeship is Mr. Kavanaugh who's like okay this is a this is a good deal I'll okay putting him in and and he must do you think he knew about the transaction the money transaction that um I can only um, this, I can only describe of what 
uh, his control over the appointments and it was supposed to be complete. So if going on the records and that he had complete control of who was appointed uh, to be a federal district judge, um, that was, uh, that was uh, part of the system. So, and Kavanaugh would have been in that loop. And um, it also, this individual, uh, the senator, is part of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee. So, um, it's... Uh, right along with White House? Uh, I, I'm not like sure. Like they sit next to each other at the Senate Judiciary Committee meetings and White House now. has no clue about this guy? Uh, I don't think so. I don't know oh. what you know now. Um, we turned this in to um, the senator from Minnesota, Klobuchar. And uh, the FBI said that they couldn't investigate it because the White House under Trump was limited to only investigation sexual allegations. What? Yeah. What? That doesn't even make any sense. Well, that's that was the orders that supposedly came down from the Trump administration and what the FBI reported. Wait, so you sent it to Klobuchar and what did you ask her to do? Well, to uh, turn this over to the uh, FBI and to take appropriate means because uh, this guy for the Supreme Court had been on the take. Right. Uh, so um, we felt this needed to be known. And um, so then, you know, everything started coming out where so everything. Wait a minute. So White House is right. Yes. White Absolutely. House is right. Because if the FBI is saying, oh, no, 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 no. We can't include this information in our vetting process of this uh, of this potential Supreme Court justice uh, because unless it involves a sexual allegation, then uh, we're not looking at it. That's correct. That I don't. I mean, I'm speechless. Honestly, I'm speechless because that and that's. That's what White House was was saying when he said, "Well, it wasn't just the the sexual uh, the the rape allegations. There are other allegations that you didn't look into." And voila, you are exhibit number one of one of these allegations. And everything I've said to you is documented by third parties. I'm, I don't know, and so. You have been knocking on the door of the FBI. Uh, first of all, they've been complicit in continu your, your continuing nightmare, you know, and they don't want to hear your evidence about the 911 uh, the, the funding by Saudi charities that you literally ran into like a buzzsaw, okay? And now they don't want to hear about what you have to say about Kavanaugh's role in these bot, bot judgeships to, to run a fraudulent uh, courtroom against you. Correct. Yeah. You wanted to say something, Nick? Yeah. Uh, an interesting thing complimenting uh, Jim's description here is this. 
South Carolina is one of the few states in this country where there is no statute of limitations. Oh. So uh, this, ad, this is a wild card where uh, if someone commits a criminal act, uh, that criminal act potentially follows that person around the rest of his life or her life. And, uh, uh, yeah, but they, yeah, but they've destroyed Jim's health. Okay. They've financially decimated him. Yeah. Okay. And so far, there's no justice. There's the justice system won't, won't deal with it at yes. from the lowest to the highest levels. Even though, by virtue of there being no statute of limitations, the FBI is fully in a position to bring about charges right now, if if the will were there within the within the FBI. Well, let me let me correct that. Um, the uh, FBI has, is in a position to bring federal charges, but um, the statute of limitations on the federal charges. Um, is still running because the cover-up is still going on, but the state charges are totally active, and both the judge, the senator, and everybody else, uh, including the officers that uh, were involved, are subject to the full extent of the law, and that makes this extremely dangerous because if someone would take the position and seek it out through a grand jury, and give the power, these people could be brought to justice. And that is something they don't want to do because it can go deep into the state budget and control board and other people that were involved in this. Well, I think the other thing that, the other thing that you mentioned to me about South Carolina that's kind of shocking, and I think I read in, in your brief somewhere, in, in your complaint somewhere, about how you know you were talking about the the all the airports and the drug money coming in, you were basically saying that uh, South Carolina is money laundering central. Correct. So if it's money laundering central, and that senator has been in office for many 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 years, I mean, that's like uh, that's the lowest hanging fruit in terms of an investigation I've ever heard of. If they would go after him, uh, he's not going to keep his mouth shut. He'll cry like a baby. Oh, my God. I, I just... I mean, your situation is just shocking. It's, it's shocking. And, you know, more and more on this show, I am, I am talking to people like you. People who are good, honest people, you're trying to do business, you buy this business, and you run into this buzzsaw. Why? Because you're an honest guy, and you're not going to go along with the program. And next thing you know, you find out that this program stretches from Venezuela to South Carolina to Washington to, you know, I mean, it's like... I don't know. It's 
like a house of mirrors. You don't know what's real. Oh, you know what's real. The whole thing is real. Look mm. at you. No. You know, you're, you're, you're living in that hell every day and no one's coming to your rescue. And I just, I just find that, I just find that incredibly unconscionable. So I'm going to make sure, um, I am going to make sure that this show gets to White House's office and, you know, obviously, maybe I should try and send it to some other senators' offices. What do you think, Nick? Where should I send it? Uh, you're the one on top of the mountain. Uh, you, you, are, uh, you, are, you understand where the, mupp the Muppeteers are. <laughs> and so we would, take your, we would take your choice on that. I mean, this is just absolutely incredible. And, and you know... And now the fact too, and I, when I read this, I think it was a, the Nation article that I read where they said that there were these 83 ethics complaints against Kavanaugh while he was being considered uh, for, for Supreme Court justice. And that after he became a Supreme Court justice, all those things went away because you can't go after a Supreme Court justice. Now, what kind of Orwellian hell do we live in where the people who are supposed to be the upholders, the primo upholders of the law of a nation are themselves not subject to those laws? Exactly. You said it. It's, it's beyond comprehension. Listen, it is that. We've, we've come to uh, the end of our time. And I just want to tell you, Jim, I, you know, I admire your courage, your honesty, your perseverance. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And I know you've been a good friend to him, Nick, a good friend. So keep on keeping on and keep me posted. And we'll do some more shows on, on, on this, uh, this story because there's so many angles uh, that really need to be uh, discussed. Like uh, Mr. FBI Fix-It, Noel Harold. I think maybe our second hour with you guys will we'll focus on that, okay? Okay. In, right. the meanwhile, in the meanwhile, take good care of yourself. Thank you. you Thank okay? you. Okay? Thank you. Bye-bye now.